next stages of war. Nine days after the brutal terrorist attack by Hamas, Israel ramps up for a ground war in Gaza. It's only the beginning. But how will civilians, including Americans, avoid the violence? U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan joins me live next. Plus, on edge, as President Biden strongly backs Israel. We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. A divide over the war is splintering the Republican field. Israel was not ready. We need to have Israel's back. How would a Republican commander-in-chief approach the Middle East? Former U.N. ambassador and presidential candidate Nikki Haley is here exclusively ahead. And House of Cards? As U.S. officials promise Israel more support, House Republicans are still at odds over their choice for speaker. With Congress paralyzed, will they be able to deliver aid? Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw is coming up. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is frankly heartsick, upset about the innocence taken from us starting eight days ago with that horrific Hamas terrorist attack, as well as the civilians killed since in Israel and Gaza, and concerned about what this next phase of the war in the Middle East will look like, and whether there is any real thought as to what is coming next. The Israeli government says after eight days of a brutal air campaign in Gaza, it is now preparing, quote, significant ground operations in response to the devastating terror attacks in which 1,000 Israelis were slaughtered, the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust, which was accompanied by the kidnapping of more than 100 innocents. Just look at these Israeli babies, reportedly hostages of Hamas, on the front page of the Israeli newspaper Yediot Achronot this morning. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of innocent civilians in Gaza, population 2.3 million, are desperately trying to flee. There are reports from inside that country that Hamas, which uses Palestinians as human shields, has set up blockades to stop its own people from fleeing. While, of course, the Israelis and Egyptians prevent access out of Gaza, all of it leading to a disastrous humanitarian crisis. From a top UN official, quote, hospitals overwhelmed with patients, are running out of medicine. Morgues are overflowing. Homes, schools, shelters, health centers, and places of worship are under intense bombardment. This morning, international officials say the only viable exit from Gaza, the Rafah crossing into Egypt's desert, remains closed. CNN's Sarah Seidner joins me now from Tel Aviv, Israel. Sarah, what is the mood on the ground there as Israel prepares for the next stage of this war? It's tense. It's anxiety filling for, for, for the residents here. Uh, and as they prepare with more than 300,000 reservists uh, who have gone to the border with Gaza, it, it seems pretty imminent that a ground war is about to get underway. The Israeli military had said that it is preparing for what it called the next stages of the war. Well, we know uh, that some of the early stages were a response from the sky. We have seen a lot of that uh, overnight uh, where airstrikes have been hitting uh, in Gaza. But you have this humanitarian crisis that is unfolding in Gaza now, partly because of the Israeli blockade, partly because uh, Hamas is not aiding or letting uh, people leave, uh, according to reports inside of Gaza. And so you have this crisis that is unfolding 
you do not have fuel, you do not have uh, potable water, you do not have food coming in uh, to Gaza, and things are getting very, very desperate, never mind the number of people who have been injured and the hospitals are at their absolute breaking point. Uh, so the world will be watching this. And, and, and Israel, I just spoke to Peter Lerner, Lieutenant Colonel uh, with the uh, Israeli Defense Forces, and, and he said, look, uh, time is of the essence. Essentially, time is of the essence. They are planning uh, to to go to their next phase very, very soon. Why is that? I asked him, and he said because they need to rid Gaza of Hamas, and that is the ultimate plan. Now, the difficulty is how they do that, because there are aid organizations that are trying to get supplies, trying to get anything to those who are in desperate need of the basics of life. Uh, and there are civilians in one of the most densely populated places on Earth trying to figure out where in God's name they can go to be safe, that just, you know, to get out of the way of harm. This is a really, really difficult situation that Gaza finds itself in, and frankly, that Israel finds itself in as it prepares for a ground offensive, Jake. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah Seidner in Tel Aviv. Joining us now, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Jake, when exactly do you expect an Israeli ground invasion to start? And what can you tell us about what that might look like? Well, Jake, I'm, I'm going to have to leave that to the Israeli Defense Forces, to the IDF, to answer. They will determine their timetable. And of course, they will determine the scope and nature of that operation. It's not for me to say. I will say we're in constant contact with them so that we can best understand Uh, what they are planning. But I can't sit here and and give you any timetable or details on that operation. That's for them. What's the ultimate goal of this incursion? Is it to invade, to kick out all of Hamas, to reoccupy Gaza? Who's going to take over afterwards? Will refugees who escape Gaza be allowed to come back? Well, at the broadest level, the goal is to ensure the safety and security of the state of Israel and the Jewish people. At, At the next level down, it's to eliminate the Hamas terrorist infrastructure, the Hamas terrorist threat, so that Hamas cannot pose a threat to Israeli citizens, to the state of Israel going forward. You've raised a number of questions there that I think are really important. They're questions we are grappling with and talking to the Israelis about even now. What does the long term look like, even as you work on the immediate term? I'm not in a position to, to give you definitive answers to that. Uh, But, of course, we are talking to the Israelis about the full set of questions, looking out into the future to ensure that Israel is safe and secure and also that innocent Palestinians living in Gaza can have a life of dignity, security and peace in the future as well. Is rescuing the hostages a priority at all? I mean, Israeli news media like Haaretz, they say it doesn't seem like it at all. And, And frankly, Jake, if my kids were being held hostage in Gaza, and as you know, there are Americans being held hostage in Gaza right now, I'd want you you to send in the Navy SEALs. What's the conversation like in the White House about the U.S. conducting any sort of operations in order to save Americans being held hostage in Gaza? Well, the president has been very clear that he has no higher priority than getting Americans back safe, Americans who are being held hostage by Hamas. The Israelis are bombing the crap out of Gaza, Jake. I mean, it doesn't seem like saving the hostages are a priority at all right now. Well, for President Biden, they are a priority. Uh, They're the highest possible priority. And he has sent hostage experts to coordinate 
and consult with the Israeli government on hostage recovery efforts. He's also made sure that our diplomats are in touch with third countries in the region to explore avenues for their safe release. I have to be cautious about how much I can say about certain efforts he's undertaking because we want to protect those efforts to give us the best possible chance of getting our people home. Now, Jake, one important point when it comes to the issue of the Navy SEALs is we do not at this point have pinpoint location information for where the American hostages are. So we have to continue to refine our understanding of where they are and even, Jake, who they are, because we know there are 15 unaccounted for Americans, but we cannot confirm the precise number of American hostages being held by Hamas at this time. All we can do is to continue to work closely with the Israeli government on hostage recovery options, which we are doing, and then work through third countries to see if there are avenues for release. Those efforts are underway. Our hope is that they can produce results. We will continue to stay focused on this. It's, the, it's as high a priority as the president has. One senior political operative with Hamas floated the possibility a few days ago of a potential prisoner swap <clears throat> with the U.S. for the release of hostages. Would, would the U.S. entertain that? We have not uh, looked at, at that, that. We have not heard from them something like that. That's not something that is currently under active discussion. It has not been proposed. What we are focused on instead, as I said before, are pursuing avenues with third countries for release. I'm not going to get into the details of what that might look like, again, to protect those channels in hopes that they can bear some fruit. Uh, but I will say that President Biden has shown over the course of the past few years that he will make hard decisions to get American uh, hostages home. In this case, our focus is on working through those third country channels, and I'll leave it at that for now. So I think there are serious reasons to question how good any intelligence about what is in Gaza is. I mean, obviously, Hamas was able to carry out this horrific attack eight days ago, catching everybody completely off guard. Uh, You just said that We don't know where the hostages are in Gaza. And yet the Israelis claim, the IDF claims, that it is bombing places that it knows are Hamas uh, targets. How how can we be sure that that's true? I mean, Hamas is a terrorist group. Don't get me wrong, but how, how do we know anything about what they're hitting, given the fact that it doesn't sound like any of the intelligence inside Gaza is particularly good. Well, Jake, Israel has known uh, where particular parts of Hamas's terrorist infrastructure have been located. They know, for example, where rockets are fired from, and they can go back to those locations to take out the rocket emplacements. They know from various forms of intelligence collection where certain individuals are located who are senior commanders in Hamas who are part of the bloody and barbaric attacks that took place against Israel last Saturday. So they do have information uh, to be able to go after specific targets, actionable targets, similar to the way the United States has been able to do that in other places, in other contexts. The United States has taken a very clear stand. It is a stand that we don't just take in this situation, but we've taken all along, which is that we stand for the rule of law, we stand for the law of war, we stand for the protection of civilians, and we want to make sure that innocent Palestinians who have nothing to do with Hamas can get to safe areas where they will be safe from bombardment and where they will have access to necessities like food, water, shelter, and medicine. Well, 
I mean, you say you stand for the rule of law. Again, Hamas is vile. What they did eight days ago, they're targeting civilians. It's horrific. But what's going on right now is not just a punishment of Hamas. More than 700 children have been reportedly killed in Gaza. And obviously, electricity, food, water supplies have been cut off by Israel to the totality of Gaza. Obviously, the blockade is not just by Israel, it's by Egypt, too. Take a listen to what Secretary Blinken said last year when Putin was targeting Ukrainian infrastructure. Heat, water, electricity for children, for the elderly, for the sick. These are President Putin's new targets. He's hitting them hard. This brutalization of Ukraine's people is barbaric. Now look, Israel is not Russia. Gaza is not Ukraine. It's a different situation. But cutting off supplies, cutting off heat, cutting off water to civilians, what's the difference? Well, first, thank you for saying that Israel is not Russia because Israel is not Russia. But Second, civilians are civilians, before, Jake. We are in civilians constant are civilians. contact. Yes, absolutely they are. And they deserve, as I said before, access to water and medicine and food. And we are working actively to ensure that that happens. And I can tell you this morning, Jake, that I have been in touch with my Israeli counterparts just within the last hour uh, who report to me that they have, in fact, turned the water pipe back on in southern Gaza. That has been the subject of discussion over the course of the past few days. The United States is going to continue working with Israel, with the U.N., with Egypt, with Jordan, and with a lot of the groups on the ground to make sure that innocent Palestinians get access to those basic necessities and are protected from bombardment because they deserve that right, the right to those necessities and the right to safety and security every bit as much as Ukrainian civilians do or civilians anywhere do. And the United States hasn't made any bones about that. We're working hard on that. We're working to make sure that that is the case as this unfolds. And it's something that has been a high priority for President Biden, for Secretary Blinken, and for myself. But you're not telling the Israelis to let the Palestinian hospitals have power. Our position is that uh, hospitals should be able to function. Hospitals should not be targeted. People should be able to get access to life-saving medical care. We don't qualify these statements. We don't say that there's some kind of caveat to them. These are simple, clear, declarative statements. It is our position that's consistent with the law of armed conflict, the law of war. It's consistent with our view as we have presented it. And I would just say, Jake, that there's a lot of reports in the fog of war about things that happen. We're not going to respond to every one of those because uh, we will seek clarity in the, the appropriate way, but we will never back off our basic principles and our basic proposition, which we have made both publicly and privately about our view about how civilians have to be protected. I haven't asked you of any of the fog of war stories. I've seen stories that blame Israel for things that later on, it turns out Hamas did them. I get it. I understand. But we have reports, and I'm sure you have them too, that hundreds of the individuals stuck in Gaza are American citizens. You know that too. There are also hundreds of uh, thousands of Americans in Israel that are trying to get out also. And the Biden administration is doing a lot to get those individuals out. 29 of the individuals killed by Hamas were American. Um, and, and there are, I think, what is it, like something like um, 40 Americans that are unaccounted for who were maybe taken prisoner by Hamas. But I want to talk to you about one Palestinian-American woman we talked to uh, named Hanin Okal. She's from New Jersey. She's got three kids, eight, two, 
in two months. Uh, I sent you the interview we did with her earlier in the week. She got to the border, the Rafah crossing. She can't get out. She can't get out of Gaza because the Egyptians won't open the crossing. Listen to what she told me earlier this week. We tried to contact the U.S. Embassy so many times. Unfortunately, they couldn't help us at all. I contacted them through the phone, via email. I texted and I, I called different numbers, but nobody, uh, I couldn't hear back from any. We are all here feeling abandoned that, and we're feeling that we're left alone. I don't know how many billions of dollars we give the Egyptians every year. Tell, why can't you tell President Sisi to open the border to let Americans out? We have told President Sisi to open the border to let Americans out. The situation there at the crossing is actually more complicated. The Egyptians have, in fact, agreed to allow Americans to depart to get safe passage through the Rafah crossing. The Israelis agreed to ensure that the area around there would be safe, as, at least as far as they were able to do so. The question when we tried to move a group yesterday was actually Hamas taking steps to try and stop that from happening. <sighs> but we are continuing to work this around the clock, and we are doing all that we can to make sure that American citizens who are in Gaza can get through that border crossing. Secretary Blinken, in fact, is in Egypt today meeting with the president of Egypt. This is at the top of his list to help get those American citizens out of Gaza. Uh, Anyone uh, who is a U.S. citizen should have the right to free passage through there and then have the U.S. government facilitate their travel home. Yeah, I don't I don't doubt that the biggest problem in all of this is Hamas. Jake Sullivan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. She was U.N. ambassador. Now she wants to be president. So what does she make of the U.N. warnings about Israel's war on Gaza? Nikki Haley joins me live next. And then are Republicans on track for another embarrassing speaker vote this week? Another one. A congressman who is quite furious at what is going on with the GOP will be here. Stay with us. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. As the Israeli government warns of a new phase in its fight against Hamas, brand new polling just into CNN shows how Americans are feeling about this war. The U.S. public broadly feels Israel's military response to the Hamas terrorist attack is fully justified. But the difference by age is quite stark. 81% of Americans over the age of 65 feel the response by the Israeli government is fully justified. But Just 27% of Americans, 18 to 34 years old, feel that way. The humanitarian crisis is also top of mind for many Americans. 71% of Americans feel a lot of sympathy for the people of Israel. 41% feel a lot of sympathy for the Palestinian people. Former U.N. Ambassador and 2024 Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley joins us now. Uh, Ambassador Haley, thanks so much for joining us. If you were president right now, would you consider uh, using the U.S. special operations to rescue American hostages being held in Gaza. You just heard Jake Sullivan say that one of the complications with that is we don't know exactly where the hostages are, but I'm wondering how much you would consider such a thing. Thanks for having me, Jake. You know, I think it's important. You have to tell hard truths to Americans. And and when you're talking about this, you know, when you showed those percentages of what people think and what they think we should do, you have to be honest with them. This is messy. 
right? I mean, we desperately want to get those American hostages out. But if you saw those kids in the hands of those terrorists, like with a mom heart, it made me sick to my stomach for all those parents having to see their children in those terrorist hands. So of course we want them out. But why isn't it so easy that we can do that? It's because we don't know where they are. And I have been in those tunnels that are massive, that are sophisticated, and that Hamas uses to hide equipment and ammunition and to do their dirty work and maybe to have those hostages. But where are those tunnels? They're underneath hospitals. They're underneath schools. They're in hard-to-find places. So this is incredibly tough. I feel for the Israeli families, I feel for the American families, and I feel for any other families who've lost a loved one or have someone in a hostage situation because it's really bleak right now, and it's hard for anyone to feel good about this. Yeah, we just showed images that your uh, your office gave us of when you visited Israel in, in 2017, and the IDF took you to those tunnels near uh, the kibbutz uh, in Ashlashah. You said that because those tunnels in Gaza are near civilian sites, it's going to get bad. It's already pretty bad, obviously. There are more than Uh, 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza, more than half of them are children. Do you think the U.S., Israel, Egypt needs to be doing more to help these innocent Palestinian civilians get out of harm's way? Although you just heard Jake Sullivan say one of the problems is Hamas is keeping uh, the civilians in Gaza. They don't want them to leave. There are a couple of things at play here. Hamas is going to do everything they can to not have them leave because guess what? They want them all to die. One, they want to use them as human shields, but two, they want to blame Israel and show images of dead children and say, look at what Israel did. But don't ever forget what Hamas did. Don't ever forget those girls running for their life. Don't ever forget those babies that were killed in cribs. Don't ever forget the people that they were dragging through the streets. And what were they saying, Jake? They were saying death to Israel, death to America. That's who we're dealing with. But I dealt with this at the United Nations. You're going to hear all of those Arab countries vilify Israel for what's about to happen. You're going to hear all of them say, how dare you not do more for the Palestinian people? And you know what? We should care about the Palestinian citizens, especially the innocent ones, because they didn't ask for this. But where are the Arab countries? Where are they? Where is Qatar? Where is Lebanon? Where is Jordan? Where is Egypt? Do you know we give Egypt over a billion dollars a year? Why aren't they opening the gates? Why aren't they taking the Palestinians? You know why? Because they know they can't vet them and they don't want Hamas in their neighborhood. So why would Israel want them in their neighborhood? So let's be honest with what's going on. The Arab countries aren't doing anything to help the Palestinians because they don't trust who is right, who is good, who is evil, and they don't want it in their country. So they're going to come and blame America. They're going to come and blame Israel and don't fall for it because they have the ability to fix all of this if they wanted to. They have the ability to go in and tell Hamas right now to stop what they're doing. They have the ability to tell Hamas to let those people out. But you know what? Qatar's going to continue to work with Hamas and their leadership. Iran's going to continue to fund all of this and not say anything. And who's silent? Every one of those Arab countries are going to be silent. But expect for the finger to point to Israel and the finger's going to point to Israel, to America. I want you to take a listen to this um, statement um, that Governor Ron DeSantis made uh, about all, I guess he's talking about all of the 2.3 million Palestinians. Um, he, he said this on the campaign trail in Iowa yesterday. If you look at how they behave, not all of them are Hamas, but they are all anti-Semitic. None of them believe in Israel's right to exist. 
Now, now just for our viewers' edification, according to recent polling earlier this year uh, from the Washington Institute, which is a, 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 a pro-Israel group, using the polling of a Palestinian Center for Public Opinion, 62% of Gazans wanted the ceasefire with Israel to stay in place. 50% of Gazans want Hamas to stop calling for Israel's destruction, want Hamas to accept a permanent two-state solution based on the 1967 borders. 70% of Gazans wanted the Palestinian Authority from the West Bank to take over Gaza. So I'm not really certain that Governor DeSantis has a real read on the difference between Hamas and the people of Gaza. What was your response when you heard what Governor DeSantis said? You know, I dealt with this every day for two years. And, you know, what I can tell you is you have to realize that whether we're talking about Gazans and Palestinians, um, you know, all of them don't, you've got half of them at the time that I was there, didn't want to be under Hamas's rule. They didn't want to have terrorists overseeing them. They knew that they were living a terrible life because of Hamas. You had the other half that supported Hamas and wanted to be a part of that. We see that with Iran too. The Iranian people don't want to be under that Iranian regime. They don't, we saw what happened to Masa Amini. We saw how they treat them. There are so many of these people who want to be free from this terrorist rule. They want to be free from all of that. And America's always been sympathetic to the fact that you can separate civilians from terrorists. And that's what we have to do. But right now, we can never take our eyes off of the terrorists. I mean, what Hamas did was um, beyond thuggish, brutal and sick. Um, What the Iranian regime is doing to help them is terrible. But let's look back at what did Biden do? Biden turned around and fell all over himself to get into the Iran deal. Obama did it before that. You gave all of this money. And what did you do? You empowered Iran to go and strengthen Hamas, strengthen Hezbollah, strengthen the Houthis to spread their terrorist activity. We went and strengthened those sanctions and decimated Iran's economy. And what happened? Biden has loosened the sanctions. Now we've got the fact that he gave six billion in hostage money. Okay, now you've frozen it. But we have all these American hostages. Guess what they're going to want? If you mm. gave them $6 billion for five people and released hostages, guess what they're going to be asking for all these others that we have? So we've created this scenario where you've given Iran, the Iranian regime, too much power and too much pull and to be able to do this. We've got to be strong. We've got to have Israel's back. And remember, as awful as these images are, and we have the back of Israel because they've been hit terribly, we have to have the back of them when they hit back as well. So speaking of having Israel's back, I want you to take a listen to uh, what Donald Trump had to say about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu a few days ago. He has been hurt very badly because of what's happened here. He was not prepared. He was not prepared. And Israel was not prepared. And under Trump, they wouldn't have had to be prepared. He went on to call Hezbollah, which the U.S. classifies as a terrorist group, very smart. He called the defense minister a jerk. uh, And he went on and on. Um, This was, I think, Wednesday. So four days after the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. What was your response when you heard that? It's why I continue to say it is time for a new generational leader. We've got to get past the headlines of the past. I mean, look, he congratulated the Chinese Communist Party not too long ago. He's saying Hezbollah is smart. I can tell you at the United Nations, um, when I was there and I dealt with all of them every day, you don't go and compliment any of them 
because what that does is that makes America look weak. It doesn't make America look strong. It doesn't make America have friends with them. What you do is you show strength. You let them know what we expect of them. So complimenting Hezbollah and going and complimenting the Chinese Communist Party or criticizing a leader who has just watched so many of his citizens brutally murdered. It's the wrong place at the wrong time. This isn't about Trump. It's not about him. It's not about what happened in the past. We've got to look forward. This is going to be tough days ahead for everyone involved. This is not the time to sit there and bash a leader. This is a time to sit there and give him the support he needs, give the Israeli people the support they need, and to help us get through this in the best way possible. Before you go, um, the House still doesn't have a speaker for the first time in American history. This is nearly two weeks after Kevin McCarthy was stripped of his leadership. They still can't even pass a resolution condemning the Hamas attacks. It's starting to look like there is not one House Republican who can get 217 votes. Uh, Republican Congressman Austin Scott said the chaos, quote, makes us look like a bunch of idiots, unquote. Is he right? Well, I'll tell you what's right is under the Biden administration, we've seen chaos um, with inflation blame, and the fact that people You can't are blame that on Biden. Seen, you can't blame this on Biden. No, you can't. Well, you have to let me finish. Okay. We have seen chaos with inflation. We've seen chaos with the lack of transparency in education. We've seen chaos on the border. We've seen chaos with crime on the streets. And now we're seeing chaos around the world. What I'm saying is you can't fix Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. They need to get it together. They need to get in a room and figure out who this is going to be and come out unified. That's what Republicans need to do. This is not a good look. This is not good for our country. We saw what happened to Israel when they were distracted. America looks so distracted right now. When America's distracted, the world is less safe. We can't sit there and act like this is September 10th. We better get it together and remember what it felt like September 12th, because we've got a lot of threats around us and a lot of chaos around us. And we need some strength. We need some stability. And again, I'll say we need a new generational leader to right this ship. Ambassador Nikki Haley, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jake. House Republicans have finally chosen another nominee to be House Speaker. But is there any way he can get 217 votes? I'm not so sure. We'll ask Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas next. Welcome back to State of the Union as Israel prepares for what is calling a new phase in its war against Hamas here in the United States. The House of Representatives is in utter chaos as House Republicans continue to struggle to elect a House Speaker. Congress could be called upon to pass an aid package for Israel as soon as this week, but it's not clear that Congress can actually do that without a House Speaker, and it's also not clear that they will have a House Speaker, at least anytime soon. Joining me now is Republican Congressman Dan Crenshaw of Texas. Um, Congressman, Republicans, as you know, have not been able to choose a House Speaker for 12 days for the first time in the history of the United States. And honestly, Congressman, just as an American, it's kind of embarrassing. Um, What message do you think it sends to the world during this time of crisis? Well, it's not good. There's no positive messages here. Um, I I don't want to give everybody the impression that it's a giant crisis either. I don't know if sometimes feels that way. This is democracy. Democracy is always pretty messy. I, I think what the real problem is, is that we've, we, we've allowed a different process of democracy to, to take hold within our own conference, um, which is that majority doesn't rule. That, that's how Speaker McCarthy was deposed. He only had 4% of our conference actually against him, and, and uh, somehow he was deposed. Now, of course, the Democrats <laughs> made up the rest of that majority, um, there, there, there's nobody blames them for this uh, because it's just assumed that they're going to vote against the speaker. But 
you know, that, that's how this stuff happens. It, it's, it's, it's not pretty. Um, there's real calls for changes in those internal rules that we abide by in the conference. But we're going to get through it. We're going to get through it. Look, it's really hard to screw up America, Jake. Uh, a lot of people have been trying for well over 250 years, and we're still at the top. We're still at the top. So let's be optimistic. So the current speaker nominee uh, is Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio, but 55 of your fellow Republicans suggested they're not going to support him on a floor vote. It seems like some of them uh, will never support him because uh, they don't like him, and some of them just don't want to reward the members of Congress who have prompted this mess, who either are part of the eight who got rid of McCarthy or part of the... 20 who opposed the more conservative uh, spending bill. You know who I'm talking about. Do you think Jordan is going to be able to get 217? Because it doesn't sound like from my reporting that he's going to. Nothing's impossible, uh, but it's going to be really, really difficult based on what I'm hearing. Uh, I don't have a good read on what every single member is thinking. As as you said, there's a lot of different reasons with different members. It's impossible for any member of our conference to get 217 true believers, 217 people who truly think you're the best, right? So we, we have a, a democratic process for a reason. You have a race, and then somebody wins a majority. It's like a primary election. And I, and I tell people all the time, if you don't like your primary candidate as a Republican, you don't go voting for the Democrat in the general election. Democrats, of course, don't do it either. And that's how this is supposed to run. Like I said, we've gotten away from that, from that basic principle. And that, that's really killing us right now. So what I, and what I would really recommend to Jordan's allies, too, is, is a lot of them have mounted this, this, this high-pressure campaign. They're going to they're gonna whip up Twitter against the people who are against Jordan. That is the dumbest way to support <laughs> Jordan. And I'm supporting Jordan. I'm going to vote for Jordan. Like, and as somebody who wants Jim Jordan, the dumbest thing you can do is to continue pissing off those people and entrench them. When I ask people who are, who are taking that tact, I'm like, did that work on you when you were one of the 20 against McCarthy and everybody was bashing you? Did that entrench you? Yeah. Or, did that, or did that make you see the light? You know, come on, people. Everybody's got to grow up, get it together. If there's differences, let's sort them out. I don't think we should take it to the floor. I don't think we should have that, that play out. It, you know, People are like, it's going to be more public and then we can have pressure and... It's already pretty public. It's, it's, not, it's not necessary at this point. So, you know, we did, we did have cool heads prevail, talk about it, see what people want, see what, made his, what has made people angry. And let's see if Jordan can, can be the leader we need him to be and, 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 and help people through those, <laughs> through those issues. Yeah, I, there's a, piece, a good piece in the Times today about that pressure campaign about people like Congresswoman Luna and Amy Kremer and, you know, far right media talking about how they're going to push people? How are you going to, how are you going to answer this question? And, and I think you're right. People are going to be like, what? Shut up. Um, if, if it doesn't go to Jordan. Yeah. Twitter's not real life. And, uh, and like, I think it's fair to say there are going to be like 20, 30 Republicans that are, don't like Jordan and you really only need five. What happens next? Is there not just a consensus candidate who might not be everybody's first choice, but like, it's just like a decent consensus guy like Tom Cole, Tom Emmer. I mean, w- why not? Uh, it's, it's hard, it's hard with hypotheticals right now. Um, those, they're not running. Okay. They're not even talking about running. Those names do come up, right? Because they are in leadership. They've been around a while. They haven't made a ton of enemies. So that's why their names come up. Um, but people find reason to become enemies in politics. Jake, you've been doing this a long time. You know that you see it all the time. 
And it's exhausting. And I, I and could say I, your I name and immediately, and immediately 30 people would say no. You know what I mean? I won't. Don't worry. Yeah, I won't. No. I won't. <laughs> and, and, and you're like, and people are like, well, you could ask them, why don't you like him? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I heard it, it, whatever. Yeah. There's manufactured divisions. It, it's it's like a central tenet in, in, in modern politics. People will find reasons, and maybe that's because they want to extract purple, uh, personal favors. And and maybe you know, people talk about the establishment all the time, Jake. I think the Democrats have an establishment. They have sort of a centralized control. They can make people do things. The Republicans have none of it. By definition, you don't have an establishment if four percent can depose your speaker. By definition, you don't have an establishment when you get more popular by, so, by, by quote-unquote, bucking the establishment. It, yeah. it negates the existence of the establishment. And so we just have a very different dynamic here. It's democracy. It's messy. We're going to get through it. So I heard one hypothetical that after the next, so that Jordan doesn't get it, and I should also note just like there are Republicans who don't like how he was kind of like one of the conspirators on the attempt to overturn the election. There's that whole OSU thing with the whatever. I don't want to get into all that, but like there are people who think he has a lot of baggage. Then it goes to some other round and like somebody else tries and doesn't get it. And then I've heard this hypothetical where people say, well, what, let's just bring McCarthy back. And either that happens or McHenry gets it by default. Is that possible, you think? Anything's possible. These are very unlikely. Uh, McCarthy has to actually want to run. Um, there's, out of protest, some, some members will vote for McCarthy. He, he has no intention of running. Uh, Jordan has, has been a true ally to McCarthy. Uh, at least from everything I've seen uh, and, and what McCarthy is saying now. And what, what I would remind a lot of uh, the members who are against Jordan, um, you know, because, because his, his reputation precedes him, but his reputation has changed over time. He has become part of the solution, not part of the problem. He has long since been part of the solution. I've had a lot of, a lot of good conversations with him. I've gotten to know him. Uh, there, there, there's a reason I support him. Um, he was trying giving to... McHenry additional powers. Well, that still requires that still requires a, a, a vote, you know. And what kind of powers? I mean, at a certain point, you're just electing a speaker. Yeah. And so, it, and he doesn't want that. He's asking us not to do that. I mean, he defied the congressional subpoena, and he was trying to get Pence to overturn the electoral votes. But anyway, you're you're in the you're in the Jordan camp. <laughs> well, um, but a lot of them did that. If I if I held that grudge, I'd, I wouldn't have friends in right, the Republican two, conference. That's two thirds of the, lot of that's two thirds that, of the conference. So. That's, a, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was on an island there. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> All right, Congressman Crenshaw, it's always good to see you, sir. Thank you so much. I'll be back at noon Eastern. New live interviews with the Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Herzog. And we'll ha- also have with us the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, right here on CNN. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is rather terrified that this brutal war between Israel and Hamas is about to get much bigger and much worse. More desperation in the Middle East this morning. This was the scene after an Israeli strike in Gaza just hours ago as people rushed to save survivors stuck under the rubble. Now the Israeli government says after eight days of a brutal air campaign, it is now preparing, quote, significant ground operations, a reminder that Hamas embeds itself within the Palestinian population. In response to the devastating terrorist attacks in which 1,000 Israelis were slaughtered, the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and that was, of course, accompanied by the kidnapping of more than 100 innocent people from Israel. In this hour, Israel is warning the Lebanese group Hezbollah, which the U.S. considers to be a terrorist group, about any further escalations from the north after the two sides escalated, exchanged fire earlier today. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of innocent civilians in Gaza, population 2.3 million, are trying to flee 
There are reports from inside the country that Hamas, which uses human shields, has set up blockades to stop its own people from, from escaping. Earlier today, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told me that Hamas is blocking civilians, including Americans, from using the only viable exit from Gaza, the rock crossing into Egypt's Sinai Desert. Sullivan also told me that water service has been restored by Israel to southern Gaza earlier this week. Israel cut off supplies of electricity, food, water, and medicine to Gaza until Hamas frees its hostages, including some Americans. Joining me now in Tel Aviv is uh, CNN's Rafael Romo. Rafael, what is the mood on the ground there as Israel prepares for this next stage of the war? Well, Jake, let me tell you, in the last few minutes, we saw four flashes right above us, followed by very loud booms. It was rockets launched by Hamas in our direction that were uh, thankfully intercepted by Israel's uh, Iron Dome, uh, the air defense system that has been working so, so good here. And that gives you an idea about what's happening here. And as you can imagine, Jake, there's a lot of concern and also uncertainty, especially given the fact that the Israel Defense Forces may be on the verge of starting a ground incursion into Gaza on Saturday. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited with the troops that had been deployed to the border with Gaza. He told the soldiers that the next stage is coming. Israel's military says its forces are increasing operational readiness for the next stages of the war. In a statement, it said that, quote, IDF forces are currently preparing to implement a wide range of operational offensive plans, which can include combined and coordinated strikes from the air, sea, and land. And Jake, the airstrikes on Gaza haven't stopped either. Israel claims its military killed a Hamas commander who played a key role in last Saturday's attack. There are new signs that this conflict is being followed very closely beyond Israel's borders. On social media, the Iranian mission to the United Nations warned of far-reaching consequences if Israel does not stop its attacks on Gaza. Add to the mix the fact that the Pentagon has ordered a second carrier strike group to the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Those two U.S. warships are not intended to join the fighting in Gaza or take part in Israel's operations, but the message take for Iran and Iranian proxies in the region, such as Hezbollah in Lebanon, is very clear. Do not get involved. Jake, back All to right, you. right, Rafael Romo in the Tel Aviv. Uh, thank you so much. Joining me now in studio is Israeli ambassador to the United States, uh, Michael uh, Herzog. Um, uh, before I start, of course, I want to offer my deepest condolences to the Israeli people about what happened uh, eight days ago. Um, just a horrific, horrific attack, a terrorist attack. Uh, I think I speak for, for all of my viewers and everybody at CNN when I say our hearts are just broken um, by what happened. Thank you very much. I highly appreciate that. It, uh, the, uh, this ground incursion that we expect um, in the next, do we, do we, can you give me any sort of sense of timing Let's, in next week? Uh, I know you have 300,000 reservists on the border. And is it an operation to rid Hamas of its military capabilities, its terrorist capabilities, or is it an operation to destroy Hamas completely? So, as you noted, Israel was attacked. Hamas waged war on Israel, and they carried out one of the worst terror attacks in world history, if not the worst. And we have no choice but uh, to strike back, and we are determined to destroy the Hamas war machine so that they cannot threaten us again. We do not want 
to be in that game where every few years uh, they launch a war against us or provoke us, that's over. And we are determined to uh, destroy the war machine. We are preparing a ground operation. I'm not going to go into details and timetables and all that, but we are at war and we're going to fight that war. And what is the plan for after you accomplish the objective? What does the end state after the operation look like? Will Israel reoccupy the Gaza Strip? Will any uh, Palestinians who fled Gaza be allowed back in? So we have no desire to occupy or reoccupy Gaza. We have no desire to rule over the lives of uh, over 2 million uh, Palestinians and certainly want people to go back to their homes. We're talking about innocent civilians. And we are doing everything we can uh, to keep them out of harm's way, while Hamas is doing everything it can to keep them in harm's way. That's the situation we are at. I think talking about uh, the day after is a bit premature, uh, because uh, crushing the Hamas war machine will require time. Uh, the question you raise are valid, and uh, I think uh, we will have to enter discussions with uh, our partners, with the international community, about uh, the day after. Uh, Aretz editorial this week said, quote, Israel's most urgent task is to bring back the Israelis held by Hamas and Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. And they point out that your finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, reportedly argued in a, in a cabinet meeting for Israel to, quote, strike Hamas brutally and not take the issue of the captives into account too much. And what Haaretz is arguing is, why not? Why, isn't the, why aren't the captives, why aren't the kidnapping victims the number one priority? Well, certainly uh, the issue of the kidnapped, Israelis and others, is, uh, is very much is high on our agenda. We're well aware of that. We're still in the process of forming a picture, understanding how many people are there, what is their condition, what is their identity. Uh, and certainly this is a consideration. I don't want to comment about uh, statements by this or that politician. Uh, all we say is that Hamas perpetrated a war crime and crime against humanity in taking hostages, and that we hold them accountable to any harm that comes to any of the hostages. Hamas is claiming that Israeli airstrikes have killed at least 13 of the hostages in Gaza. Do you have any idea if that's true? Uh, I don't know. I would be very careful about uh, what they say. Uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation and propaganda there. Uh, so I would be very careful. In, uh, take, I, I would take what they say with a grain of salt. You said a week ago it was premature to discuss any deals for exchanging hostages. Has that changed? Is there any discussion about any any? prisoner swaps, hostage swaps? Uh, we're not at that phase. And uh, as I said, we're in the middle of war, and yeah. we still have to know how many hostages there are and what is their condition. So you obviously distinguish between Hamas and the 2.3 million Palestinians, many of whom are prisoners of Hamas in Gaza. Uh, Israel has warned the 1.1 million in northern Gaza to evacuate. Um, and, and uh, the U.S. officials, uh, the U.S. has even said that's a tall order. The U.N. has said it's impossible to get them all out. What's the latest on these humanitarian quarters and letting the innocent victims of, of Hamas, in many ways, get out? So I'm glad you asked the question. Uh, 
Uh, our enemy is Hamas. It's not uh, the Palestinian people. It's not the innocent civilians. But many of them are dying Gaza. because of Israeli so, bombardment. Uh, they are used by Hamas as human shields. That's why we call on them to leave their homes, because as we intens- intensify the war against Hamas and the Hamas war machine, we don't want to harm any civilians. And we ask them to move to the south of Gaza. Hamas... Uh, in contrast, is asking them to stay, is forcing them to stay. Right, they're setting up blockades. They are confiscating uh, car keys and so on. We see all that. They want to use them as human shields. Uh, Already 700,000 people left their homes, and we are in the process of establishing a humanitarian zone, a big humanitarian zone in the southern part of Gaza, with the UN, we're working very closely with UN agencies so that they will go there, it will be a humanitarian zone, and they will give, get all the essential provisions like water, medicine, uh, food, and things like that. We are in that process. But are the Egyptians letting... First of all, we heard that Hamas wouldn't let Americans trapped in Gaza out to Rafa true. crossing. That's true. We are in the process of facilitating their exit. They're already in the crossing, and Hamas preventing them, preventing them from uh, leaving Gaza. And those are the Americans. And then we know that al-Sisi has been reluctant to let the Palestinians out of the Rafah gate because he doesn't want a refugee camp. He doesn't want them going into Egypt. As I explained, the, the uh, humanitarian zone that we are establishing with the UN, I want to emphasize, we work very closely with UN agencies. Humanitarian agencies is inside Gaza, in the southern part of Gaza, to be able to host hundreds of thousands of people, and they get all the food and provisions and essentials. That's where we are. And you want them, you want aid to be able to get in, into Gaza, not just people getting out of Gaza. You want aid in. Yes, I'm talking about uh, aid getting to a humanitarian zone that we are creating. And again, I want to emphasize, we are doing everything we can to get innocent civilians out of harm's way, while Hamas is doing everything they can to get them in harm's way. And I know you want to punish Hamas by cutting off supplies, electricity, water, etc., but that is hurting civilians. It is hurting... Let me explain. We're not punishing Hamas. They wage war on us. I understand that, but, but when you cut off all those other things, it also so hurts the we people. We do not cut electricity to Hamas. All electricity power lines leading from Israel to Gaza were destroyed by Hamas rockets. Let's be clear on that. We're not punishing anybody. We are waging war on Hamas, and that's the reality. It's a war zone. They destroyed the only crossing from Israel to Gaza. They destroyed all the electricity lines. They destroyed the water line uh, from Israel to Gaza. That's the situation. We are operating under international law, and any uh, essentials that the Palestinian population needs will facilitate. That's why we're establishing this safe zone. All right. Uh, Ambassador Herzog, thank you so much for being with us, and I am praying for peace. So are we. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, For more, I'm going to talk to the vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, about what he is learning. He will join us uh, live next. Welcome back to State of the Union as we enter day eight of this war and what appears to be an imminent ground invasion of Gaza by Israeli forces. There remain so many outstanding questions about what role the United States should play in not only aiding a key ally, Israel, but rescuing the Americans currently being held hostage by Hamas. 
Joining us now is Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida. He is the vice chair of the Senate uh, Intelligence Committee. Um, Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Um, So you've seen the top intelligence. What should we as Americans be prepared to see uh, when a ground invasion happens, uh, which we're all preparing ourselves to to witness? Well, I think... Again, never commenting on intelligence specifically, but I think much of the commentary you've seen out there with things people have been saying is accurate. The first is, you know, an incursion into Gaza to try to root out Hamas. Uh, I believe the Israelis have the ability to do it, especially with uh, us, our resupply role that we're going to play. But it won't be an easy task. I mean, there's no doubt Hamas has booby-trapped the place. They've, they've, they have taken a defensive posture and they're hiding behind civilians. I mean, we've seen the reporting just today, open source media, about how they're preventing civilians from moving and people from getting out of the way. So it's part of their tactics. I think obviously related to that is what is Hezbollah and behind them Iran planning to do as a result of this. As this moves forward, um, as this goes on, and look, wars are painful, difficult things. They're not pleasant. They're not, they're not uh, you know, the kinds of things that anyone should be cheering on. But sometimes, unfortunately, in human affairs, they become necessary in particular to get rid of this terrorist group. What is the reaction going to be from Hezbollah? Are they going to launch a second front? Because I think that changes this dynamic substantially uh, in very serious ways. This is a very delicate moment, a necessary moment, unfortunately, but it's also one that we shouldn't take lightly. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, deeply troubling at the same time as we know what Israel has to do here. How long uh, should Israel and the world be prepared uh, for this war to last. Uh, and, and what do you think is the end goal? You heard the ambassador say that Israel does not want to reoccupy uh, Gaza. But, but if they get rid of Hamas, what happens? Who takes control of Gaza? Well, and that's a difficult question, right? The Egyptians certainly don't want any part of assuming any of the responsibility here. Understand Hamas is a descendant, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. And they certainly don't want that in their country either, which complicates this further. Um, I, I can't speak to Israeli tactics or what their plans are after the fact. I certainly uh, think that's going to be one of the things that's going to be problematic. As far as the time frame that's involved, I don't know if anybody can tell you what I'm pretty certain. I think the Israelis would say it. Everybody would say it is this is not one of those 72 hour or two or three week deals here. I mean, this is going to take some time. Hamas is deeply embedded. They hide in tunnels. And it's not just Hamas. There are Islamic Jihad and other groups that are involved in this as well. So this is going to be a complicated process. I think Israel, with our support, has the ability to carry out the job. But it's going to be painful. It's going to be costly all around. They know that. They've, they've messaged that. And I think this is a months-type situation, not days or weeks-type situation from everything I've seen. And I hope I'm wrong, obviously. I hope it's quicker than that. But that's the direction everyone seems to believe this will go. It, Governor and um, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley was on the show earlier talking about how the leaders of Arab nations, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Qatar, et cetera, et cetera, could be doing so much more and don't. Obviously talk a lot about the Palestinians at other times, but really pony up very little when it comes to actual effort. What could they be doing, not only in um, getting Hamas to to, uh, release the hostages, but in terms of helping the Palestinian people have a thriving democracy uh, on the banks of the Mediterranean if they wanted to, if there were some sort of Arab League security force that could, that could help with that effort. 
Well, and I think one of the things we're learning, okay, and, I, and we're reminded of is, I don't care what country you are, no country in the world wants mass migrations of people from other places. I mean, it was a mass migration of refugees that changed the dynamic of Lebanon completely, re-altered the demographics, plunged the country into a long civil war, and has brought it to the point it is today. Egypt doesn't want that. Jordan doesn't want that. None of these countries want that. No, no, none of them are poning up and saying, send everybody to us. Right, right. So I think certainly they could play a role in that regard in terms of helping accommodate people coming there and, and, and providing that. The other is obviously the, the role they play in some cases, some of these countries, in being supporters of Hamas in the past. Look, the, the Qataris, I think, are a strategic ally and, and someone we work with on many issues, but they've also been a supporter of Hamas. Now, my understanding is they're trying to play a constructive role in this regard, but at the same time, I think we have to, this should be a lesson to all these uh, nations uh, and governments, that if you, you're trying to play an outsized role in the region by having these groups that you have relationships with, it will end up backfiring on you, particularly a group like this that is committed to the establishment of an Islamic fundamentalist Palestinian state that stretches from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. So uh, I, I hope this will be a lesson that groups like this should not be coddled or encouraged. We, the hope is to find responsible actors that you can partner with and engage with in the region. That just hasn't existed, which is what makes this part of the world so difficult. And that's why I think we have to take things one step at a time in that regard. And step one is to eliminate Hamas as a military threat. They simply cannot continue to be a military threat after what they've done. And then there are a lot of complicated questions. And anyone who tells you they have somewhere in their jacket... Uh, a, a simple plan to fix all this in the long term is not being honest. There are a lot of complex twists and turns and difficult decisions to be made. But the one that's pretty clear at the front end is Hamas has to be eliminated as a military threat. So you said that any civilian casualties in Gaza are 100 percent the fault of Hamas because Hamas Correct. launched the attack eight days ago and is currently using these civilians as human shields, you know, embedding within the populace, et cetera, preventing Palestinians from fleeing. Still, it is an ugly reality, an ugly fact that 700 Palestinian kids have reportedly been killed in the last eight days. Do you think that Israel has done enough to try to avoid civilian casualties in Gaza? Is there anything more Israel could be doing, anything more Egypt could be doing, anything more the U.S. could be doing? Well, and I think those efforts are underway. I think you've seen Israel, for example, try to, uh, and has been doing it from the very beginning, telling people to get out of there, to move. And you've seen some efforts to move. You've seen efforts from Hamas to prevent that from happening. Ultimately, the other thing to remember here is, look, wars are terrible, ugly things. And unfortunately, in human affairs, they are necessary sometimes because nations have a right to self-defense. Hamas cannot be allowed to continue to exist. And they, they follow the same pattern over and over again. They kill Israelis, and then they run, and they hide in their tunnels. They put civilians in front of them. Civilians get killed. The world screams at Israel, you need to stop. Israel stops. And then Hamas comes back and kills more Israelis in the future. That pattern cannot continue. As far as what more can be done, I think a lot of those efforts are in place to ask as many people as possible to move to the south. There's reports this morning, the Israelis say they've turned on the water again, and hopefully some of the power to that part where that, that could be a safe haven. But it's important to remember here, Israel is not saying we are going to attack civilians for the purpose of inflicting terror. They are trying to target Hamas strongholds. That's what they're targeting. If civilians are in those strongholds, it's because Hamas has placed themselves there, unfortunately, sadly, tragically. But nonetheless, what choice does Israel have? They cannot coexist with this element that is willing to do what we just saw a week ago yesterday. Um, lastly, the, the House of Representatives is now on day 12 without a speaker, which hinders all of Congress's ability to do anything. 
Uh, it's unclear whether any of the current candidates are going to be able to get 217 votes. This means that the House can't even pass a resolution condemning Hamas, uh, let alone support for Israel, let alone all of Congress being able to pass any new aid packages for Israel or for Ukraine. Um, at what point does this chaos within the House Republican conference start to jeopardize national security or American leadership in the world? And what is your message to your House Republican colleagues? Well, I, it's, you know, I don't vote in the House. I'm not a House member. I don't think they listen or care what senators think about their affairs. I can't control what happens there. So they need to obviously work through that process and figure it out. And I hope that they do, obviously. Well, here's the one thing I do want to say. With Israel, much of our aid and support to Israel is codified. In fact, we codified it with my bill, along with Senator Coons, two years ago. That doesn't mean we're not going to have to come back at some point and put additional funding. But luckily, the reason why we codified that support is because I always suspected and feared that a crisis involving Israel would move much faster than the ability of Congress to respond. At some point here soon, we will need a speaker, we will need a functioning House, and there are things we're going to have to do to help Israel, including fund the government in less than 35 days or keep it open. So that's all going to have to happen. And, um, you know, I'll watch and hope, like everybody else, that the House will be able to work through that process. I'm not going to try to steer it or influence it. I don't think I have any influence over what the House does. And hopefully we'll be in a situation here soon where that won't be a factor. But the good news is there's the administration right now has ample authorities to do what they are doing, and that is position not just the equipment that's already accessible, but resupply should Israel need it here over the next couple of weeks. I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you, you anticipated uh, some of this clownishness, it sounds like. So you're, you're to be commended for your, your prescience. Again, that's my words, not yours. Thank you so much, Senator Rubio. Thank you. I <laughs> appreciate your time today. Uh, Coming up next, their lives were forever changed by the brutality of Hamas. But those who lost the most eight days ago, well, they have a message for all of us that you might want to hear. A warning of some graphic video here as we take stock of this really, really awful week. Eight days ago, terrorists with Hamas invaded Israel and slaughtered hundreds of innocent people. Hundreds. Seniors at a bus stop. Babies in their cribs little kids at home, young people at a music festival. It was the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And none of this was about liberating the innocent people of Gaza from the oppression of the Israeli and Egyptian blockade of Gaza. That blockade began after Hamas, which the U.S. and E.U. classify as a terrorist group, after Hamas took control of Gaza in 2007 and refused to disavow violence and refused to recognize Israel. The people of Gaza indeed deserve to live without a blockade. They deserve to live in freedom and with democracy and human rights and without fear of their government, which Hamas denies them. If any of this were about freedom and rights, Why would Hamas have slaughtered, for example, Danielle Waldman? Danielle was 24. She was at the music festival. Do you know who her dad is? Her dad is Eyal Waldman. He's an Israeli tech CEO who had employees in the West Bank and Gaza to improve relations. Here's Eyal talking to my friend and colleague Aaron Burnett, literally hours after he found out his beloved Danielle had been killed. I want to talk about peace. I was one of the first persons that have employed 
Palestinian employees. We have treated our Palestinian employees the same as the Israeli employees, hoping for peace. Even today, our hand is reaching out for peace. We want to learn to live together, not to continue killing each other. And this is Eyal's Instagram feed. Please post this on your social feeds, he writes. Every day this man, Netanyahu, sits in his chair as prime minister, will cause suffering to all sides, he writes. If any of this were about freedom and human rights, why would Hamas have killed Chaim Katzman, a peace activist who opposed the Netanyahu government for being too oppressive of Palestinians? I spoke with Chaim's sibling, Noy Katzman. The most important for me, and I think also for my brother, was that his death won't be used to kill innocent people. Um, and sadly, um, my government, our government, my government is using cynically the death of people to just kill. Like they promised us, it was going to bring it's going to bring us um, like security. But of course, it's not security because they always tell us, "Oh, that if we're going to kill enough Palestinians." Or they're gonna, so it's gonna be better for us. But of course, it never brings us peace and it never brings us better lives. It just brings more and more terror and more and more uh, people killed, like my brother. One of the most disturbing parts of watching this disaster unfold from the United States is watching students on, on college campuses here embrace the symbol of the Hamas terrorist paragliders who attacked Israel that day slaughtering innocent civilians and babies and women and the elderly. This symbol, as if it's some sort of rebellious icon. Here's one from the University of Washington in Seattle. But they've cropped up all over college campuses. I'm wondering what you think when you see your fellow Americans, and again, protesting for Palestinian rights, great, do it. Those people deserve human rights. But... When you, when you see people embracing the symbol of the Hamas murderers who, who murdered your cousin, what do you think? Well, first off, it's extremely shocking to see. And, um, and I, I don't know if these people are misled or if they actually believe what they're supporting is helping the Palestinians, but it, it's simply not. It's, um, they're supporting the wrong cause. The fight that Hamas is trying to fight isn't going to get the Palestinians anywhere. They're just causing more and more suffering in the region. Their goal is to annihilate the state of Israel. They say it. They, they openly say it, and they're proud of it. And that's not something that's going to help bring dignity to the Palestinians. I think it's in everyone's best interest to get Hamas out of there and you know, hopefully build a better future for everyone in the Middle East. It's very difficult to see that better future now, but we can all pray that the humanity of those three we just heard from will ultimately rule the day, not the brutality and barbarism that we saw from Hamas eight eight days ago, and not the, the death of innocence that we continue to see in Israel and in Gaza. I wish you shalom, salam aleikum, may peace be upon all of us. All of us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 
and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.